and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 10. We're in the double digits now. Yay! Last episode, to kick off our little series on the rise of modern Christian fundamentalism, we took a look at the scientific revolution of the early modern period, particularly paying attention to the dismantling over the course of a little more than a century of the geocentric model in favor of the heliocentric model. That is, our our gaze was mostly at the stars. We were looking up. Today, I would like to look a little closer to home, specifically at the foundations of modern geology and discussions of the age of the Earth, and the foundations of modern biology, particularly evolution by natural selection. And from there, jump directly into the religious backlash against, against the challenges posed to the old stabilities by both the findings and maybe even more importantly by the epistemologies of the scientific method. To start, though, we should probably mention James Usher, Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of Ireland from 1625 to 1656. What Usher did, and why he's important to us today, was to attempt to establish the exact date and time of creation. He did this by counting back the genealogies that are mentioned in the Old Testament and reading literally the lifespans that are given in those texts. And the precise date and time that he arrived at was October 22nd, 4004 BC at 6 p.m. So by Armagh's chronology, I mean by Usher's chronology, and I make that mistake all the time. The universe is about 6,000 years old. This age of the earth was actually taken at face value by many people, including scientists and, of course, religious leaders. For our purposes, though, what matters is that going up into the 19th century, scientists still believed that, or at least scientists in the Christian world believed that. But increasingly, towards the end of the 18th and getting into the early 19th centuries, that position was becoming harder and harder to maintain. And this is where geology comes in. The person I'm going to focus on today is Charles Lyell, whose three-volume Principles of Geology, published over the course of 1830 to 1833, stands as a foundational text in that science. Lyell uses the theory of uniformitarianism, which I believe was first articulated in 1788 by James Hutton in his work Theory of the Earth. Hutton didn't use the term, but he outlined the principles. And the basic principle is one of continuity. That is, past geologic events can be explained by processes that are currently observable. The present is the key to the past. Key to uniformitarianism as well is the consistency of natural forces operating in the earth. That is, the same forces that are operating now operated in the past. And these forces operate consistently. They, they operate at about the same rate. Now, there can be explosive outbursts, of course, like earthquakes, but these, as we now know, are simply the process of accumulated forces working at a fairly consistent rate. Central also to uniformitarianism is the notion that nothing outside of the earth is required to explain geologic events and geologic developments. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because the forces that work in the earth, the forces that shape the earth, act very slowly. They are utterly incompatible with the age of the earth as posited by Bishop Usher. 
Lyle traveled widely and he examined different types of terrain, different types of rock all over the world. And he observed the processes by which change occurs in rock. For example, the erosion caused by a stream or by the wind or by ice freezing in a crack in rock and expanding and breaking it. These are all very slow processes, but given enough time, a river can carve a canyon. Given enough time, silt settling to the bottom of a body of water will form a layer that gets compressed into rock. But none of these processes can account for how the world came to look as it is within the 6,000-year period allowed by Usher's chronology. Now, the reason Lyle traveled so broadly was specifically so that he could collect evidence, so that he could work from the authority of observation rather than the basically worthless authority of words transmitted over generations based on some ancient text whose claims about the shaping of the world have no corroborating evidence. And the conclusion that he came to was that the earth is far, far older than anyone in his society suspected. He never specifies the age, but what Lyle effectively discovers is deep time. An earth so old that a river, for example, moving over rock, and carve its way all the way down to the bottom of something like the Grand Canyon. And this principle of uniformitarianism remains one of the central principles of geology, and it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to posit that at some point the laws of nature changed, then you incur a burden of proof for that. Whereas if, if you're simply going from the assumption that the laws of nature as you observe them are continuous, and then can develop a cogent explanation of whatever phenomenon you're observing from, from that position, you're in a much stronger position than the person who has to posit some unexplained or maybe even unexplainable shift in the actual laws of nature. Now, the theory that uniformitarianism displaces is called catastrophism. Catastrophism is the position that all of the major features of the Earth were formed very rapidly as a result of catastrophic action, since which we've been resting at a relatively steady state. The catastrophe most commonly cited, of course, was Noah's mythical flood. And there are still young Earth creationists around today who will try with deep, deep dishonesty, or at least with superhuman levels of cognitive dissonance, to convince you that the Grand Canyon, for example, was caused by the waters of Yahweh's genocidal inundation. Now, this shift in whether we see natural forces as being consistent across time, or whether we don't see them as being consistent across time, is on a level with one of the things we were discussing last episode. The notion that natural forces are consistent across time is no less important than what the early astronomers discovered particularly Galileo, that matter is consistent both below and above the orbit of the moon. That is, there is no eternal matter. All matter is the same kind of stuff as what we observe around us. And therefore, we can do tests and experiments here to learn about what's going on out there or what did go on out there. That is, there's a physical continuity to the cosmos that particularly Galileo took major steps in establishing. 
the continuity of natural forces across time is the comparable achievement in geology. We can draw conclusions about the deep past by analogy from observing forces at work in the present, because they're the same forces and they're working on the same kind of stuff. That is, it's much more parsimonious than catastrophism. And because it yields testable predictions, it is falsifiable, which makes it a good theory. But why does that matter? Well, it immediately calls into question how literally we can take biblical chronology. And it draws attention very much in a way that the observations of the actual solar system and actual cosmos caused attention between what can be observed and what religious authority posits as true. And the tension here is one of blind forces operating slowly and without direction versus a sudden conscious creation. That is, the process of us becoming less special continues in the work of Hutton and Lyle, and it also opens the door to one of the most important scientific theories ever to have been articulated, and that is the theory of evolution by natural selection. But what do I say about evolution? Unfortunately, no discussion of evolution, at least in any kind of public forum, can be only scientific, even though the theory itself is a purely scientific theory because it's gotten so embroiled and immediately became embroiled in matters of ideology, of, of religion, of, of human worth and ethics and questions such as that. But I'll get to those. The first thing I should probably mention is that the name associated most closely with evolution, Charles Darwin, who did posit the theory of evolution by natural selection, was not the first person to pose some kind of biological evolution. That theory is actually quite old. And by quite old, I mean it was originally proposed by Empedocles, who died in 432 BC. Empedocles, and we have this recorded in Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, which incidentally I know Darwin read, suggested that complex life forms developed from simpler life forms and that the origin of life probably was someplace wet and muddy. So the idea is not new. But as I said also, where Lucretius is concerned, his work and the work, therefore, of much that he recorded from earlier times was effectively suppressed by the church for a long time. But even so, a little closer to Darwin's time, a Frenchman by the name of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck in 1801 proposed a process of evolution by which acquired characteristics are passed on. The example he uses, or one of the examples he uses, is the muscles in the arms of a blacksmith suggesting that if the blacksmith acquires very muscular arms as a result of his work, his children will tend to have more muscular arms than they otherwise would have. So that's Lamarckian evolution, and it was a very popular hypothesis throughout much of the 19th century. It's since been disproven, so it's no longer really taken seriously. But for a long time it was. It was taken seriously until it was falsified quite properly. So Darwin's claim to fame is not that he suggested evolution, which is just that species change over time. What he proposed, and this was a real game changer, was the process by which that change occurs, and this is called natural selection. And I think I should probably get into that in at least a little bit of detail, because honestly, whenever I ask my students, what do you know about evolution, the, the answer usually comes back some version of not much. Now, granted, I teach 
in the humanities department at a liberal arts university, or sorry, the humanities faculty, so my classrooms are not filled by young scientists. But even so, this is such a fundamental theory that it ought to be generally understood far better than it is. So, let's see. As probably a lot of you know, Darwin was the science officer on the HMS Beagle during its five-year circumnavigation of the globe from 1831 to 1836. It was during this journey that the notion of natural selection first occurred to him. And again, as many of you know, a key chunk of his evidence consisted of the shapes of beaks that he encountered in the finches of the Galapagos Islands. Why does this matter? Well, the Galapagos Islands are volcanic islands about 2,000 miles off the coast of Chile. Because they are relatively recent, geologically speaking, there hasn't been life there for very long, simply because the islands haven't been there for very long. So whatever plant or animal life exists on the island right now, ultimately it had to come from someplace else. So it's a nice isolated spot to take a look at how living organisms develop when they're relatively shut off from the rest of the world. And regarding the birds, Darwin was originally quite surprised to learn that so many of these birds he was looking at were all actually finches, because each of them had developed to fill a different ecological niche. Some of them ate nuts and seeds, some of them ate worms, bugs, what have you, and beak shapes, of course, just like tooth shapes, are adapted to food sources. But given that they were all finches, and given that the species of finch encountered on the Galapagos Islands aren't encountered anywhere else. It's not possible that all of these species were just blown here in some storm or blown to the Galapagos Islands in some storm, leaving absolutely no trace population back in South America, which would be where their ancestor species originated. So the Galapagos finches could only have developed on the Galapagos Islands after the arrival of finches from elsewhere. And this got Darwin to wondering, why? How? And when I say why in a scientific context, by the way, I always mean how. So, so honestly, if I say why in a scientific context, I am misspeaking and you should simply assume that I mean how. But how could these relatively recently arrived birds speciate so quickly and in such a variety that in many cases species are unique to individual islands? There is simply no way the biblical account can be honestly interpreted to give a good reason for this. Well, natural selection is Darwin's answer to that question. And here's how it works. Or at least here's a sketch of how it works, given the relatively brief amount of time its slot in this episode allows. It starts with natural variation. And this is nothing more than the simple observation that children are not born identical to their parents. That's it offspring are different from their parents. Now, given that offspring are different from their parents, and given that it is a struggle to survive in any environment, natural selection is simply this. Those offspring whose traits give them even the slightest advantage in terms of surviving long enough to reproduce over the other members of their species or even their own siblings will be more likely to produce. And insofar as they're more likely to produce, they're more likely to transmit their physical inheritance. Darwin didn't know about genes, but he had some sense of heredity. They'll be more likely to transmit their particular endowments 
two subsequent generations. Given enough generations, the changes can become quite substantial. Now, add to this mutation. And Darwin knew about mutation. Sometimes any given organism will be born, hatched, what have you, with a trait that is not typically part of its physical makeup. These traits can be either detrimental, neutral, or beneficial. If they are detrimental, they will reduce the likelihood that that particular individual will survive long enough to reproduce. On the other hand, if they're beneficial, they will increase the likelihood that that particular individual in that particular environment will survive long enough to reproduce. If they're neutral, there can be some other effects as well. I don't want to get into those right now, but I think I might return to them in a future episode because it's actually very interesting. So, okay, offspring are not identical to their parents. Some changes are beneficial, some changes are detrimental. Beneficial changes will help in survival. That, by definition, is what beneficial is. Therefore, those with beneficial traits in a particular context are more likely to survive to reproduce. Now, let's throw in a few more details because really this theory is not terribly complex. It's very, very elegant, actually. So far, we've discussed variation, including mutation, and something called selection pressure. Selection pressure is simply the pressure that the environment puts on the individual. So, say, for example, the type of food that's available, or the types of predator that are also in the environment. All of these will affect what particular traits are advantageous to that particular individual or to that particular individual's population group. That is, selection pressure is the mechanism by which it is decided which mutations or which variations are beneficial and which are not. This is not random. Now, I've often heard evolution misrepresented as animals developing, or organisms, sorry, developing by chance. Natural selection is the opposite of chance. Chance is random. Natural selection is not. It's not consciously directed, but it is not chance. It's very, very specific, actually. So what this means, and this is why Darwin, he had thought of this theory, and he had most of the details worked out by the end of the 1830s, and he didn't publish on the origin of species until 1859, his reason was he knew it would cause an uproar. Because if you have natural variation, and if you have natural selection pressure, that is, something other than chance, something far more tightly constrained than chance, then you don't need a guiding hand to shape species. The environment does that for you. No god is needed. Now, some people like to insert god into it, and that's fine if it makes them feel better, but the god concept has no business here. It just doesn't do any work. So what also was going on here is that evolution by natural selection has no upward trajectory. It's not teleological. We are not getting better. Darwin rarely, if ever, uses the phrase survival of the fittest. That actually is a post-Darwinian construction, as far as I know. But fitness in the Darwinian context, fitness in the evolutionary context, doesn't refer to bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, or any particular set of traits. All it refers to is what traits in the context of that particular environment are going to give that particular organism a reproductive advantage. That's it. It's value neutral. So there is no looking at humanity, for example, and saying we are more evolved than, oh, I don't know, an octopus. We're not. We're evolved to flourish in the environment in which we originated. 
Octopi are evolved to flourish in whichever environment their specific species originate. So there's no higher or lower here. That, that teleology, the notion of, uh, of a ladder of creation, which still clings on in our culture, and the sooner we get rid of it, the better, has no place in this kind of thinking. But there's a problem. And everything I've said so far is completely unproblematic unless you have a pre-existing commitment to its not being correct. The problem is time. Evolution takes a very, very long time. And the timescales permitted by the biblical chronology simply don't come remotely close to allowing for the kind of time that speciation would take, that different species developing from a single population would take. Enter Charles Lyell. Darwin was very fond of Lyell's work. He was familiar with it. The two of them actually corresponded. And each of them had a very high regard for the other. Lyell's discovery, basically, of deep time is what made natural selection plausible. And Darwin, Darwin pushes this a little further because, well, in the Genesis myth, creatures are created in what are called their kinds. And Darwinian evolution, evolution by natural selection, has no place for kinds. Darwin posits that all life may have begun from one single instance. And he's probably right. Life seems to have originated on, on Earth within a couple of hundred million years of the planet being cool enough for life to be possible. That is, we've had life on Earth for three and a half billion years, maybe as much as four billion years, most of it single cellular. And there are genetic similarities between every instance of life on Earth and every other instance of life on Earth. That is, evolution by natural selection is one of the most robust theories that the scientific method has yet to produce. It's more robustly supported than the theory of gravity, than the germ theory of disease, than relativity, than quantum mechanics. It's very well established. And it was established as true, at least in the broad strokes, within a few decades of Darwin publishing on the origin of species. But let's pause here and think about what this actually meant to society at large, because the reaction that Darwin got was immediate and passionate on both sides, and it's worth taking a few minutes to consider what that reaction was and why. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on the scientific reaction, because that's not really the topic of, the, of this episode. Darwin's contemporary scientists were, of course, skeptical. Whether they were inclined to accept it or whether they were not inclined to accept it, they were skeptical because that comes with the territory. And what also comes with the territory is trying to falsify it. So they tried to falsify it. It's never been falsified, ever. Not once. And just to be very clear there, what I mean is it's never been falsified by a legitimate scientific experiment. There are lots of people who continue to deny it. There are many who, who even say that it's not really science, but it is. And that criticism, to the best of my knowledge, always comes from a very conservative, very literal-minded religious background. That is, it's people who don't know the science talking out of their ass because they don't like the science. And within, as I said just a few minutes ago, within a few decades of the first publication of Origin of Species, that evolution happened, which was already pretty well understood, but that it happened by natural selection was well established. 
Since then, of course, the theory has continued to be fleshed out. It now forms the basis of modern biology and a great deal of modern medicine. That is, if it weren't true, these sciences wouldn't work, and they do. As it develops, more and more details emerge that Darwin didn't know about and couldn't have known about. And as it continues to unfold, details will emerge that we currently don't know about and can't know about. Because, of course, the conclusion is never final. Scientific knowledge, as I was discussing last episode, is always provisional. We never have a final conclusion. We only have a series of hypotheses that are not yet falsified. And those hypotheses, in the case of most modern sciences, continue to become more and more precise as we hone down on finer and finer knowledge. But as I said, I, I don't want to spend the bulk of my time talking about the science. This is actually more socially and politically aimed, for today at least. So what exactly was the religious reaction to Darwin's theory? And the answer, of course, because religion itself isn't a single thing, is that there wasn't a single reaction. It really depended on the denomination, on the location, whether parts of the theory were accepted or whether the entire thing was rejected. So let's start close to home with the Anglican Church. Like many large churches, the Anglican Church itself is not always unified on every question, and that was the case here. More liberal church members and church authorities, such as, for example, Baden-Powell, a priest and mathematician, and incidentally the father of Lord Baden-Powell, who was the founder of the Boy Scouts, saw no problem with Darwin's theory pretty much as it was presented. Powell's position was that God had created a world in which natural laws operate, and therefore, understanding those natural laws is simply understanding the world as God created it. And to object to those natural laws, or to object to the study and exposition of those natural laws, would be intellectually perverse. And when I said before that the God concept does no work in evolution, this is largely what I mean. Because a God is, is not demonstrable scientifically, it serves no purpose in the discussion. If it helped Powell to posit a God who created the natural laws or natural processes that Darwin very competently chronicled, then that's fine. What this allowed was for for Powell and his co-religionists to accept the world as it presents itself on the one hand without having to turn away from their faith on the other. It's a form of accommodation that, that works fairly well, actually. And this, by the way, is very similar to the position adopted by the Catholic Church, so I may as well get into that now, too. The official position of the Church since 1996 has been that evolution is an established fact, but that there are different domains within which science and religion work, and that science should concern itself to speculating on what happens, and that religion concerns itself with questions of meaning, value, and things beyond what the empirical method can touch. There are some problems with that, but it is basically a civilized accommodation. And there were already hints of that not long after Darwin's initial publication. That is, basically what the church does is accepts that evolution happens, accepts the timescales, but does not accept natural selection as an unguided driver of the process. Now, to turn back to the Church of England, as I said, the liberal church members 
were able to accommodate the emerging worldview, the emerging observations of how the world actually is with the most important elements of their beliefs. But of course, the more conservative members of the church, and this included the majority of the church hierarchy, higher up, could not make such an accommodation. And the biggest sticking point for them, and hold on to this because it's a big one moving forward as well, was not so much Darwin's methodology, but the inevitable conclusion of his argument, which he never actually states in Origin of Species, that humanity evolved from apes or has a common ancestor with apes. That is, the placing of humanity within the circles of nature qualitatively no different from any other animal species is what was such an affront and what remains such an affront to many conservative religionists. That is, the problem was not that the argument was in and of itself wrong. The problem was that the conclusion of the argument posed, as far as they were concerned, an affront to human dignity. The most outspoken and widely recognized member of the Church of England to adopt this point of view was Samuel Wilberforce, Lord Bishop of Oxford, who wrote a scathing 17,000-word review of Darwin's work and subsequently, in 1860, engaged in a public conversation at Oxford with Thomas Henry Huxley on the subject. Before I say anything about that encounter, though, I should probably say a little bit about Thomas Henry Huxley. Huxley was a biologist, self-taught, and it's very important to think that he was self-taught. At the time, the Anglican Church was in charge of education throughout England. This included university education and therefore scientific education. Huxley was from outside of that system. He had educated himself free of the formal influence of the church. Now, as for Huxley's relationship with Darwin, his epithet Darwin's Bulldog sums it up pretty well. Huxley saw a copy of Origin of Species before it was published. And up until that point, he had been deeply skeptical to the point of rejecting the notion of evolution because he couldn't see a mechanism for it, which was perfectly reasonable. Where there's no mechanism, it's difficult to actually adopt something as a scientific principle. When Huxley saw Darwin's work, however, his first response was, and I quote, how extremely stupid not to have thought of that. And this is wonderful, isn't it? He changed his mind on a dime when confronted with evidence that his previous position was wrong. That's how science is supposed to work. You don't cling to some supposed eternal truth. You base your opinions, you base your positions on the evidence and assign confidence to them in proportion to the evidence. That's the best you can ever do for knowledge. So Huxley here is, is a portrait of intellectual honesty. On that note, he's also the person who coined the term agnosticism, and this is actually also in the context of the evolution-creation debate. And his definition of agnosticism is simply this, follow your reason as far as it will take you, without regard for any other consideration. That's actually my definition of intellectual honesty, and to be perfectly blunt, it's how I try to live my life. Or, to be more accurate, it is how I try to conduct myself when I'm figuring out what is and is not true. How I live my life is, and I believe should be, based on what I understand to be true. 
But that determination of what is or is not true should, I think, be done without reference to preferences, to desires, to aversions. Simply look at the facts and see what they are. And as for the facts in this case, they unanimously support evolution by natural selection. So, what was the objection then that Wilberforce had? Did he have a problem with Darwin's methodology? No. Did he have a problem with the idea that natural selection worked where plants and what he considered animals were concerned? No. At least, if he did, it was secondary. No, his, his objection was that he saw the theory as an affront to human dignity because it placed human beings on the same playing field as other living things. So when he tore into Darwin publicly, his argument, such as it was, consisted largely of ridiculing the theory, pointing out the absurdity of humans evolving from apes or sharing an ancestor with apes, and pointing out that it was wrong because it disagreed with Scripture. Now hold on to that. It was wrong because it disagreed with Scripture. Now, here... We're back in Galileo land, aren't we? And unfortunately, I have to throw in a caveat. There is no transcript of this exchange. So anything I say is based on reports after the fact. So while this is actually a very famous conversation, there is no definitive version of it. I'll do my best to lay out what I think is fairly reliable and what may well be apocryphal. But as I said, we are in Galileo land, aren't we? Let's go back to the Inquisition confronting Galileo over his findings. They forced him to recant under threat of torture. And why did they force him to recant? Because he had seen things, and, and they were perfectly capable of checking these things out. Telescopes weren't Galileo's top secret weapon or anything like that. He'd seen the mountains on the moon. He'd seen the phases of Venus. He'd seen the moons of Jupiter. So what Galileo was basically told he had to do by the religious authority of his day was deny what he knew to be true. What his reliable observations, what the best available evidence told him to be true, because it didn't match the religious belief of the time, because it didn't match what he was supposed to believe. That is, for the church confronting Galileo, Belief came before fact. You start from a belief position and you make the facts fit your belief position. It's completely backwards. And this is what Wilberforce is doing here. Darwin's evidence is good. And as I said, his theory has only become more robust the more people have submitted it to skepticism, to systematic scrutiny. Darwin was right, and he knew he was right, and Huxley knew he was right. And I think if Wilberforce had an honest bone in his body, he also knew that Darwin was right. But he wasn't allowed to think that because, from his position, faith had to come before fact. This, when I said before in the last episode, the central conflict of the modern period is the conflict between religion and science, to boil it down even further, it is the conflict between what comes first, faith or fact. Give me the facts any goddamn day. And as for the facts of this particular conversation, it seems to be the case that Wilberforce challenged Huxley with the question of which of his grandparents 
was the ape. As I said, mockery was part of his rhetorical style. It had to be. His position has no substance. Now this next bit, I think, is probably apocryphal, but supposedly, reportedly, Huxley then turned to the person sitting beside him and said, The Lord hath delivered him into my hands. After which, and here I'm working from what Huxley said two months later, when he was asked about the exchange, as recorded in his personal correspondence, which appears in Frank James's article, or chapter rather, An Open Clash Between Science and the Church, Wilberforce, Huxley, and Hooker on Darwin at the British Association, Oxford, 1860, in the volume Science and Beliefs, From Natural Philosophy to Natural Science, 1700 to 1900, published by Ashgate in 2005. So this is his response. If then, said I, the question is put to me, would I rather have a miserable ape for a grandfather, or a man highly endowed by nature and possessing great means and influence, and yet who employs those faculties and that influence for the mere purpose of introducing ridicule into a grand scientific discussion, I unhesitatingly affirm my preference for the ape. And I wish I could go back in time with a microphone just so that Thomas Henry Huxley could drop it. Because what Huxley is getting at here is the central element in the conversation we're having right now, and that is intellectual integrity. Huxley is calling out Wilberforce and calling out the establishment that Wilberforce represents, both religiously and educationally, for giving their intellectual allegiance primarily to a religious doctrine rather than anything that can actually be demonstrated empirically. The context for this conversation is an ongoing argument that's happening in largely educational circles in Britain at the time, in which Huxley and other like-minded and mostly younger scientists are trying to wrest control of particularly scientific education away from the ideological stranglehold of the church and establish rather what we now call academic freedom in the university. And this at least is one case in which the good guys won. And ultimately, the church was forced to take its faith-infested little fingers out of scientific education in the academy. And this, I think, brings us to the end of the British part of the conversation, which, even though acrimonious, was conducted, as you might expect, of a British academic discussion in very civilized tones. Nasty sometimes, but always with a polish of civilization. Let's shift now to this side of the Atlantic and how the book was received, how Origin of Species was received in the United States, where incidentally, and this took Darwin completely by surprise, it immediately became a bestseller. But okay, let's get into the context into which the book disembarks. The year is 1859, two years before the outbreak of the Civil War, and really, as far as I can tell, the only time in American history when the United States has been more divided than it is right now. And I'm not even sure if I can say it's more divided, because we haven't seen how the current context plays out. But we are in the antebellum era, the pre-war era. Well, what kind of conversations do you think this book, which posits a common ancestry for all living things, is likely to provoke in that environment.
And well, if you guessed that the reaction was divided between North and South, you win. Unfortunately, I haven't got my Patreon set up yet, so I can't give you a prize. But at least we can all share in the satisfaction of not being the least bit surprised at how this played out. And yes, in so-called first world countries, the American phenomenon of evolution denial, and it is mostly an American phenomenon, I'm actually tempted to call it an American pathology, is bound up in the discourse of race. Because it seems that all American political discourse, in one way or another, is bound up in the question of race. For example, and I really hadn't planned on talking about this when I started recording this episode or laying out such notes as I tend to make, just two years prior, in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court reached a 7-2 decision in which they determined that African Americans, in this case particularly a former slave by the name of Dred Scott, were not entitled to the protection of citizens under the Constitution of the United States because they had not been intended to be protected as such by the actual drafters of the Constitution. That is, there was an absolute barrier as far as the Supreme Court was concerned, in 1857, between white and black Americans as to who could be a citizen and who could not. So how, how does Darwin's theory, evolution by natural selection, affect this? Well, huh. and I love this because many of the arguments against evolution coming out of the religious right in the U.S., and the strongest opposition to evolution by natural selection is coming out of the religious right in the U.S. That's people I often refer to as the idiot fringe, but they're not, unfortunately, a fringe. They're kind of mainstream. The assertion is that if we are, quote, just, unquote, animals, we can have no foundation for our morality. I'll address that in a future episode in depth because it's something to which I've given quite a great deal of thought and a considerable amount of reading. But if there is no absolute boundary between us and animals, or sorry, between us and other animals, then obviously there can be no absolute boundary between us and other human beings who are obviously much closer related to the white us of the mainstream American discourse than gorillas and chimpanzees are. So what evolution does is ultimately establish a common humanity that American racial discourse absolutely denies. And in fact, although Darwin was very much bound up in many of the ideas of his time, he thought white people were smarter than black people, he thought men were smarter than women, he was also absolutely appalled by the institution of slavery. So, as for the breakdown of the reception of Origin of Species in the U.S., the scientific community embraced it pretty well. As I've already said, it has good evidence, it makes a coherent argument, and it holds up under examination. But the religious community rejected it, generally speaking, especially in the South. And here we need to recognize a major difference between religious patterns in Britain and in the U.S. And that is, in the U.S., fundamentalist religion was far more common. That is, where, say, the Anglican Church, or, or the Catholic Church as well, 
had the brains to view the Genesis myth as metaphoric, the six days creation as six metaphoric days, not six 24-hour days, and therefore not be tied to a very strict chronology that binds us to about a 6,000-year timeline, which of course left them open to incorporate new discoveries, new realizations into their overall worldview. A fundamentalist perspective doesn't offer that option. The Pope, for example, as I said, does accept evolution, as does the Archbishop of Canterbury. Moreover, whether you lived in the North or whether you lived in the South was also likely to influence whether or not you were willing to recognize the soundness of the argument for evolution by natural selection. In the North, where slavery had already been abolished, while there wasn't equality between the races, there was at least not the ingrained and absolute hierarchy and absolute separation between the two. In the South, which is also incidentally where religion at its most fundamentalist, this is the Bible Belt, was entrenched, it was effectively impossible to accept the conclusions of natural selection, that is that all living things are on the same spectrum, while simultaneously maintaining the absolute separation of supposed races, which themselves are the construct largely of the slave trade, or at least largely of, of European colonialism. These two things simply don't work together. They can be made to work together. They are kind of jammed together in a political pseudo-philosophy called social Darwinism, but that had nothing to do and has nothing to do with evolution by natural selection, and its premises are quite frankly nonsensical, but we'll get to that eventually. Moreover, as strongly entrenched as fundamentalism already was in American religiosity, the arrival of the theory of evolution by natural selection on American shores kind of pushed American fundamentalists over the edge. I mean, if I could sum up the reaction from that segment of society in a couple of words, um, well... SHUT UP! But perhaps I should elaborate. In the years following the Civil War, and particularly as the, uh, as the 19th century drew to a close, opposition to Darwinian evolution increased, particularly among the evangelical community, which, as you probably know, is the community that is most prone to fundamentalism in their approach to religion. One particular critic coming out of that community was, was an evangelical missionary by the name of Dwight L. Moody. And Moody's critique of evolution by natural selection was, well, it was twofold. On the one hand, because he was a literalist, he had to see evolution as running against biblical authority. And as I've said before and will say again, that's the trap of biblical literalism. It, it forces you to choose faith over fact, whereas a more open-minded, whereas a more metaphoric approach to sacred text allows for accommodation to observed reality. A literalist approach, a fundamentalist approach, really doesn't. And I guess I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, and it's one to which I will frequently return, that the position that this necessity of denying reality actually puts the believer in does real violence to the human intellect. 
it forces you to mutilate not the facts, because the facts are independent of any observer, but rather to mutilate your capacity to process facts in an honest and, I would say, psychologically healthy way. I'm reminded of the mythological story of the bed of Procrustes, the world's worst host, who, when he offered you a place to sleep, if you were too short to perfectly fit the bed he offered you, he would have you stretched until you fit. And if you were too tall, he would have you trimmed down a bit by, oh, you know, lopping off a foot here or a head there. This is the intellectual bind that the fundamentalist approach to religion puts the believer in where observed, observable, provable fact is concerned. And as I said, it's, it's psychologically unhealthy. It does genuine damage to the intellect. And I think at least the worst extremes of that bind are able to be avoided by simply a looser interpretation of scripture. So I'm not arguing against all religion here. I really, really need to make that clear over and over and over again. It really is just that narrow, literal-minded approach. But to return to Moody, let's see. Oh yeah, his other main critique of evolution was not just that it was counter to scripture, but that it was destructive to what he saw as public morality. That is, the, the, the opposition to evolution is in this particular argument, that it's opposed to public morality, not that it's wrong per se, but that if it's accepted as right, public morality will suffer. Now, that's a particular logical fallacy. It's called the fallacy of the consequent, by which we decide whether or not to accept an argument as true based not on the evidence and logic that supports it, but rather on whether or not we like the outcome of its being accepted as true. Again, this is completely backward reasoning. Something either is or is not true before its effects become relevant. If it's true, you accept it as true and then deal with the effects, hopefully in the most ethical way that you can. If it's not true, then it's not true and you don't need to worry about it. But as for how uh, Moody approached anything, and this I think is quite informative, while he read widely, and I do mean very widely, his comment on his own reading habits was that I do not read any book unless it helps me understand the book. Everything for Moody had to be related to the Bible. And for him, the account in Genesis, Genesis in its entirety actually, provided a key for interpreting the entire book and therefore basically the entire world and an entire human life. So you can see where where Darwin doesn't fit all that comfortably into Moody's thinking. And he was a very popular figure. He was originally born in Massachusetts, and he was one of the most popular evangelizers, public evangelizers, in, in the United States. He, he traveled all over the country giving revivalist speeches. This is the age of the revival tent. And he had what was called a, a conversion caravan that, that just traipsed all over the place and pulled huge audiences, turned people away. There was something going on in, in the United States in the late 19th century. A hunger for lost certainty, I think, might be part of it, but I don't know. I haven't studied the phenomenon all that closely, so I can't speak authoritatively on it, but that hunger was there in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As I said, this is the age of the revival tent. 
And Moody was a central figure in that. And he, along with the majority of other revivalists, was absolutely opposed to Darwin's theory. Now, another figure, and a very similar figure, was William B. Riley. Now, Riley was another revivalist. He was another big tent guy, particularly in, uh, in the Midwest and in the West, particularly the Northwest. One of the things that Riley stressed was biblical inerrancy. That is, the Bible had to be right. Or, let me put it this way, the Bible was right, no matter what it said. There is an appeal to such an approach. And this is bound up, I think, in that hunger for certainty, which the scientific method doesn't allow for, and which, which an evolutionary understanding of, of human nature doesn't allow for. And this is not to say that Riley was a bad person. Both Riley and Moody were actively involved in numerous charitable endeavors. They were morally committed to the betterment of society as they understood it. So while I disagree with them profoundly, I do, I do respect their characters. Where I disagree most profoundly is with Riley's particularly politically engaged version of fundamentalism. As he put it, the mission of Christianity is political. Or in his words, when the church is regarded as the body of God-fearing, righteous-living men, then it ought to be in politics and as a powerful influence. That is, we see in Riley, and I'm not saying it originates with him, but we certainly see it with him, a growing pushback against the separation of church and state in American politics. Riley was of the opinion that the church should be supreme, that the laws of God, as he understood them, should come before the laws of human beings. And in fact, he is one of the people attributed with coining the term fundamentalist in 1919. So the term itself is only about a hundred years old. So when I say this is a, a modern development, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm being very serious. We can look back and see certain denominations are more fundamentalist than others, but the, the, the label, the name fundamentalist, is a relatively new coinage. And in his embrace of the most literal possible reading of scripture, Riley was necessarily against many of the developments of modern life, of, of modern society, with all of its changing social and intellectual currents. Regarding evolution, he described it as propaganda of infidelity palmed off in the name of science. And in fact, Riley denied that there was any compelling evidence for evolution. And you still hear this a lot in creationist circles that there is no evidence for evolution, and no matter how much evidence you actually produce, you just hear back, there is no evidence for evolution. But again, uh, with Riley, the opposition to evolution is not merely an intellectual opposition. It's also what he saw as an ethical opposition. He was afraid of the notion attributed to Darwin, survival of the fittest, which again is, is actually not Darwinian and is usually misunderstood when it's applied to a Darwinian context. But he was afraid that this was fatal to public morality, that it pointed necessarily towards a narrow self-interest at the expense of all other considerations. And this is a criticism in which he is not alone, and one that I'll have to come back to at greater length later. As I've said before, I do plan on going into evolutionary and non-theistic approaches to ethics and morality. 
Right now, I'm just laying out in the relatively little bit of time I have for this chunk, the broad strokes of fundamentalist opposition to evolution. I'll probably elaborate a bit next week. But it wasn't just evolution that was threatening to Riley and his fellow fundamentalists. The late 19th century was intellectually a very vibrant time. It was a vibrant time in scholarship. And one particular type of scholarship, one particular area of scholarship that's really important to our conversation right now is is the biblical scholarship coming out of largely Germany, in which the methodologies of modern textual criticism were actually being applied to the Bible. Why not? It's a text, and we can't give it a priori preference. That is in itself intellectually dishonest. So, so scholars who didn't have a previous commitment to the necessary truth of the text were simply treating it like any other book, as one should, and they were coming up with arguments that really threatened a fundamentalist understanding of, of, of what the book actually was. For example, that the book of Genesis incorporates four distinct scriptural traditions that were only assembled later on. That is, it's not a single unified text. It certainly was not composed by Moses, who probably didn't even exist. So, modern understanding, modern intellectual scholarly activity, and modern methodologies, when applied to the most important book in the Christian canon, the Bible, utterly destabilized the reliability of the text. Well, there are a couple of ways you can react to this. One is that you can look at the arguments and assess the arguments, and if they work, you accept them. This is the approach I recommend, by the way. Another is you can not only reject them, but retreat from them. And this is a phenomenon that actually is all too common when people are presented with evidence that a particular position they hold is incorrect, demonstrably incorrect, factually wrong. Well, we might like to think we all have the honesty or integrity to say, okay, fine, I was wrong, like Thomas Henry Huxley did when he saw the evidence for evolution. It's actually far more common to reject the evidence. This is not universally true. It tends to become more true the more closely associated the idea being challenged is with one's own sense of, of identity, of, of who and what one is. And for deeply religious people, there's not much that has more to do with the sense of identity than the truth of the religion to which they've dedicated their lives. And this is what lies behind, or at least a big chunk of what lies behind the fundamentalist rejection of, of science, of modernity, of empirical methodology. If you're empirical about your myths, they're not going to stand up. They just aren't. So if you want to hold on to your myths, you have to reject empiricism. And this is what fundamentalism does. It places the literal word of the supposed divine being before any other consideration. But okay, what are we to make of this, of this knee-jerk, psychologically understandable, but I think ultimately destructive, rejection of modern methodology, of the scientific method, especially when applied to so-called sacred truths? Well, you end up with a guy like Tennessee State Legislator John Washington Butler, who introduced an act to the, uh, the Tennessee House of Representatives 
banning the teaching of evolution in public schools. In Butler's words, the Bible is the foundation upon which our American government is built. Yes, that little chestnut is creeping in here now as well, and we're going to have a lot to say about it next week. The idea of the United States as a, quote, Christian nation, end quote, that rhetoric comes out of the fundamentalist Protestant community. So we're seeing seeds in the 1920s that are currently bearing fruit, and it is, it is an ugly, bitter fruit. But as far as Butler was concerned, and again I quote, the evolutionist who denies the biblical story of creation, as well as other Bible accounts, cannot be a Christian. That is, Butler sets up uh, what's called a no-true-Scotsman fallacy. If you accept evolution, you can't be Christian by his definition, even though a lot of Christians do accept evolution. And if you haven't heard the term no-true-Scotsman, it goes something like this. And this is the classic example. You might say to me, no true Scotsman eats sugar with his porridge. To which I might reply, well, my Uncle Angus is Scottish, and he eats sugar in his porridge. To which you reply, ah, well, he's not a true Scotsman. Another term for the no true Scotsman fallacy is the, the definitional fallacy, the fallacy of definition. And we hear it all the time where the conduct of members of a particular religion may be concerned. You might say, for example, no true Christian would ever kill another person for his beliefs. Well, you know, there are all kinds of uh, kinds of people in the Middle Ages who thought they were true Christians and took up arms in the Crusades. That is, no one person's definition of what a Scotsman or a Christian is is relevant because there are so many possible definitions available. Here's my advice. Someone tells you they're a Christian? Believe them. Someone tells you they're a Muslim? Believe them. Someone tells you they're an atheist? Believe them, because you can't see inside their heads, sunshine. You just can't. And given the almost unlimited range of motives for human action, you can't conceive of the full range of possibilities that might occur to someone else. In any case, the Butler Act passed in 1925, and it became illegal to teach evolution in Tennessee public schools. This act remained on the books until 1967. And immediately, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, offered to defend any science teacher in the state who would teach evolution in a public school. And a Dayton, Tennessee teacher by the name of John Scopes agreed to work with them on this. So he taught evolution. He was immediately brought on trial. And the trial in which he was found guilty, was basically a showdown between religious and secular values, religious and secular reasoning, between the supremacy of science and religion as an authoritative discourse. Clarence Darrow, who defended Scopes, was at the time the most famous lawyer in, in the country. And the prosecutor was William Jennings Bryan, who was very politically engaged. He'd made a couple of runs at the presidency, and he was very much opposed to evolution because of his concern over, over morality. Now, during this trial, which is popularly known as the monkey trial, Darrow does something really interesting. He calls Bryan to the stand and and begins to question him about the Bible, asking him lawyer to lawyer, 
So someone bound to accept rational arguments based on evidence. How certain things in the Bible can actually make sense. For example, how can there be days when the sun isn't even created until the fourth day? And of course, there are numerous contradictions in the Bible, and I think we'll have some fun exploring some of those in future episodes. But for today, it's worth noting that ultimately Scopes was found guilty and fined, though his conviction was later overturned by the Tennessee Supreme Court on a technicality. But for our purposes today, there were two developments to emerge from the very public Scopes Monkey trial, and one, it gave a public platform for not only discussing evolution, but for critiquing the Bible in American social discourse. On the other hand, following Scopes' conviction and the fact that it was only overturned on a technicality, other states, particularly southern states, enacted similar laws, making it illegal to teach evolution. So what we have now by 1925, 65 years roughly, after the arrival of the origin of species, we see American society moving backward, banning the teaching of a particularly well-documented scientific position because it conflicts with a particularly popular myth. That is, we see, in the legal sense, a rise of fundamentalist political clout. And we see what it looks like in a society that rejects empirical argument, empirical evidence, in favor of a belief or a belief system that it takes as being true regardless of what can be demonstrated to the contrary. And we see the emergence of the narrative that is going on to this day of America as a Christian nation. That is ultimately what we see in the rise of fundamentalism in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries is a large segment of society in intellectual retreat, but simultaneously on the political advance. It's a withdrawal from the uncertainties of provisional knowledge to the fiction of certainty, to the fiction of absolute knowledge that allows a person to pretend that there's something solid, something absolute, on which they can anchor their identity. And here, I think it's worth bearing in mind, and I've read a number of studies to this effect, that in comparisons between conservatives and progressives, conservatives tend to be more motivated by fear particularly fear of change, fear of the unknown. So next time you hear a conservative talking tough, bear that in mind. Just as my parents taught me about encountering animals in the wild, they're more scared of you than you are of them. And you know, <laughs> maybe they should be. And with that, I think I'll call it a day for now. Next episode, we'll pick up with with a bit of a traipse through the history of fundamentalism in the U.S. throughout the 20th century. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, I'm at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com, or check out the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page, or at echumanist on Twitter. The podcast is now available on most of the outlets that are around. And if you're enjoying these little chats of ours, please consider sharing them. When you're striving for a public voice, as I obviously am, otherwise I wouldn't be putting these things up on a public medium, there really is no better support than the social media equivalent of word of mouth. I will certainly be grateful for the boost. In any case, and as always, thank you for listening. Whether you agree with me, whether you disagree, thank you for listening. And until next time, be kind to each other.